Well, this morning's sermon passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 16. You can find this on page 962 if you use on one of the church Bibles. First Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me and there are many adversaries." When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that you have devoted themselves, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and labourer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus, and Fortunatus, and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you, the, send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, we've come to the end of a long series in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. If you remember back at the very first sermon, you'll, you'll know this actually isn't Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, this is probably his second letter. Uh, it's just the first one that we have uh, maintained and recorded for us. So this is the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians that appears in Scripture. I, I trust the time that we've spent uh, in the past year in this book has been uh, fruitful for you. And as we consider Paul's concluding remarks here in chapter 16, I, I want to begin by drawing your attention to what Paul says there in verse 14 of this chapter. Uh, there we read this simple yet very profound instruction for the church Paul says there, let all that you do be done in love. In many ways, that's a summary of the book of 1 Corinthians. If you think back for a moment over what we've seen in this letter, in chapters 1 to 3, Paul is calling the church to set aside their divisions 
and to pursue uh, loving gospel unity in the church. In chapter 4, he rebukes them for their unloving attitude towards him. In chapter 5, Paul calls the church to show love to a man who's proudly living in terrible sin. Paul says the loving thing to do actually isn't to simply tolerate his sin or encourage his sin or simply tell him that he's forgiven for his sin, but rather to actually put this man outside of the church so that he might repent. In chapter 6, he rebukes them for their lack of love in suing one another and dragging each other into, into court, disgracing the gospel in public. In chapter 7, he calls on husbands and wives to love one another faithfully. At the beginning of chapter 8, he calls them to love God rather than idols. In chapter 8, verse 3. He moves on then in chapters 8 through 10 to call the members of the church, those with strong consciences, to sacrifice the freedom that they have in Christ out of love for their weaker brothers and sisters. In chapters 11 through 14, he, he confronts them about their unloving, unhelpful behaviors when they gather together for corporate worship. And of course, in chapter 13, Paul gives us his great treatise on the nature of Christ-like love. Over and over in 1 Corinthians, Paul is calling the church to reimagine their lives and their life together in light of the gospel message. Corinth was a prosperous and licentious city. And the church there was in danger of being conformed to the image, the pattern of the surrounding world. They were placing high value on the philosophical systems that were valued and, and treasured in Corinth. They were frequenting the celebrations at the pagan temple and even visiting the prostitutes that worked there. They were appealing to the pagan court systems to arbitrate their disputes. They were putting themselves first. They were pursuing greatness in the way the world around them defined it. And into that world of molding and conforming pressure, Paul keeps pointing the Corinthians to the transforming message of the gospel. That message of God's incredible love in sending his son to die for wayward and rebellious people like you and me and like the Corinthians. And so Paul calls them over and over again in this letter to live in light of that love, to take the love that they had received from God in Christ and to return it to him, to spread it to one another, to amplify it around into the surrounding world. Do all things in love. Paul has been saying throughout this whole letter, do all things in love, church at Corinth. He's saying to us, do all things in love, Sterling Park Baptist Church. That, I think, is the message of 1 Corinthians. And so as we look at this final chapter, we see how Paul concludes his letter to this troubled and troubling church. And I think we can understand everything that he wants to say here, this sort of grab bag of instructions and greetings, under the heading of love. Do all things in love. And so let's see, as we look at this chapter, three different ways that Paul encourages the church in love. First, he encourages them in the love that exists between churches. So if you look there in verses 19 and 20, towards the end of the chapter, we read this. The churches of Asia send you greetings. 
Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Paul passes on greetings from three distinct groups of believers. He greets them on behalf of the churches in Asia. Uh, that's roughly the part of the world that we would, we would consider the, the modern nation of Turkey. Paul was writing to the Corinthians from the city of Ephesus, which was located in the Roman province of Asia. And it was from there, the book of Acts tells us, from Ephesus that the gospel had gone out into all the region. So we read in Acts chapter 19 about Paul's work of preaching in Ephesus. It says, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul was preaching the message, the gospel of the Lord Jesus in the city of Ephesus, and he was sending out believers into the surrounding region. Churches were growing there to the point that when you get into early 90s AD, so about 40 years later after Paul's writing 1 Corinthians, the apostle John is, is writing the book of Revelation and the Lord Jesus there can send letters to seven different churches in Asia, places like Smyrna, Laodicea, and Ephesus. Paul was well connected to these ministries. They had grown out of his own. And so he sends greetings to the Corinthians from the churches meeting in all those places. He also specifically mentions the church that meets in the house of Aquila and Prisca. Uh, sometimes uh, her name comes as Priscilla. We're first introduced to this married couple in Acts 18. They were Jews uh, who lived in the city of Corinth because, Acts tells us, all of the Jews had been expelled from Rome by the emperor Claudius. And so Paul arrives in Corinth. He meets this Jewish married couple. It just so happens that they're engaged in the same line of business that, that Paul was trained in professionally. They were tent makers. And so Paul lives with them uh, when he's preaching the gospel in Corinth. They were crucial to the founding of this church. They traveled with Paul, we read, to, to Ephesus in the book of Acts. And they were the people who actually mentored and discipled Apollos, who we'll hear about later. And so it seems that a church met in their house, a church in Ephesus met at the house of Aquila and Prisca, and most likely this was the church that Paul himself was a part of. And so, of course, this couple would want to send their love back to their brothers and sisters in Corinth. Paul also greets the church at Corinth from all the brothers, as he says there in verse 20. Uh, most likely, this is Paul talking about his crew of fellow workers including people like Sosthenes, who we met back in chapter 1, who the book of Acts tells us had the, the tar beaten out of him in Corinth. Uh, also, people like Titus were with Paul at this time in Ephesus. And so Paul sends greetings. He sends the love of these different churches and different believers to the Christians in Corinth. And I think Paul's impulse there and his understanding of the relationship between believers in different churches is actually really instructive for us. I think it's a model for us for, for the way that churches ought to relate to one another. Paul is working here at the end of the letter to cultivate interest and mutual care between these various congregations. He assumes the Corinthians feel some kind of kinship with the churches in Asia and with the church specifically that meets in Aquila and Prisca's house. Paul assumes that the Corinthians have some kind of affection 
and connection with their brothers and sisters around the world. And, and friends, I think that's how churches are meant to function. I think it's normal for churches to care not only about the people in their churches, but also to care about and love other congregations. I think it's sad, maybe this is something that particularly as a pastor I run into, but, but many churches view other congregations as if there's some kind of competition, as if we're threats to one another's success. Some churches look on other churches the way Burger King looks at McDonald's. But it shouldn't be so. Church, any congregation that preaches the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're our teammates, not our competition. The people in those churches are our dear brothers and sisters in the Lord. You see, the gospel reshapes our priorities. The love of Christ compels us. It gives us a greater vision than, than merely one of our own glory and success. We want Christ to be loved widely. We want the message of his death and resurrection to be honored by many and for churches around the area and around the world to be strong. This might be one of the hidden benefits of Christianity losing its place of cultural respectability in the Western world. I think persecution and rejection have a way of clarifying for you who are your friends and who are your enemies. We as a church want to have open hands and open hearts towards other churches, again, both in our area and all around the world. This is why we have, from time to time, pastors and church planters come to us from other places to, to share God's word with us, but also to tell us about God's work in places like Lovettsville and Liverpool and Portugal and South Africa and India. This is why Tarun led us for, in prayer for other congregations and why we make that a habit pretty much every Sunday. This is why we try to be open-handed with our, with our building and our resources. So just last week on Good Friday, the brothers and sisters from Cascades Bible uh, baptized uh, several people in their Good Friday service, new believers, right? And we, we got a chance to rejoice with them, and they, they borrowed our baptistry, right, to do that, our sort of portable coffin. Um, <laughs> we're like, look, if, you, if they survive, you're welcome to it, right? But it was just a joy in some small way to say yes and let us celebrate. We prayed for them in our Sunday morning service to delight that God is saving people in other churches, right? We want to be open-handed in any way that we can with anything we have. This is why the pastors of this church spend a lot of time meeting with and praying with and learning from and even mentoring and strategizing with pastors of other churches because they're our teammates. We're all working towards the same goal, not the, not the glory of our individual congregation, but the glory of Christ. I think when this posture takes root in a church, it will spill over into all sorts of areas of our lives. It'll particularly spill over, I think, in our finances. Now look there what Paul says in verses 1 to 4. Look at the effects of this love that we might have for other brothers and sisters in other places. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. 
Paul's concerned to instruct the Corinthians regarding a collection that he was taking for the poor in Jerusalem. We know there was a famine in the city at the time, and so Paul is reaching out to churches around the Gentile world and asking them to collect money to help their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Paul was passionate about this project. We see appeals for this collection in other letters in the Bible, such as his letter to the church at Rome, the churches in Galatia, and again in 2 Corinthians. Paul's entire third missionary journey was dedicated to collecting this money for the church in Jerusalem. And so he instructs the church in Corinth to take an offering every time they gather on Sunday so that when he arrives, there doesn't need to be a capital campaign, right? The money is already ready. The idea is that every Sunday as they gathered together, uh, they would give something. Paul says that they should do it as he may prosper there in verse 2. Right, the idea is that every, everyone would set something aside. Those who were particularly prosperous would set aside more. This would be collected and saved. And then when Paul visited, he could, he could take it. He says there in verse 3 that he would send it on to Jerusalem by the, the hands of people they trusted. It's sad. But you remember that many in the church didn't trust Paul. They were made nervous by the fact that he didn't take money from them. Uh, they thought that he, he had an angle, that he had a, a plan, that he was always like asking for money for other people, but there was something going on there. So here Paul says, look, collect the money and we'll send it by other people, right? If it's, if it's advisable that I should go, then you send them with me, right? He, he just cares about the money getting to the saints in Jerusalem. And so at the very least, we can say that the love of Christ, right, do all things in love, right? I think this this love of Christ that flows out of us to other churches and to our brothers and sisters in other places, I think at the very least we can say it's going to be reflected in our finances. Right? There, there's no reason that a largely Gentile church like the one in Corinth, full of people who honestly don't have much money, there's no reason why they would take some of the very little they have and set it aside for Jewish people they've never met. It was simply the case that they loved and cared about those fellow believers because they were brothers and sisters in Christ. And so church, there's a pattern here for us to follow. Doing all things in love includes how we think about our finances. The love of Christ makes us generous. Right, we thought about that at length from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians a few months ago when we thought about uh, the financing of a new building. But it's good for us to remember it's good for us to be reminded of the, the instincts and priorities that should drive us as individuals and as a church. It's more than just love for other Christians. It's also a desire to see more Christians in more places. I was talking with an old friend this past week. He's a friend of our congregation. He's pastored in the Middle East. He's now retired and living in the United States. And I was asking him, I said, look, do you have an Arabic-speaking church planter that you can send to us. Do you know the largest mosque in the D.C. metro area is right around the corner over here? Arabic-speaking people are immigrating to this area and particularly to Sterling Park in droves. And there is almost nothing in terms of a healthy witness uh, to this community. And so I asked my friend, he's, as I said, retired. He's no longer pastoring in the Middle East. I said, do you have a guy? Do you know a guy that you could send to us? I don't, I don't want to take somebody who should be pastoring in the Middle East. But if you have a guy who's here in America and who's staying in America, 
Like, could you send them to us? And he's like, I think I have just the guy. I think I know, I think I know exactly who would be a great fit for that. He said, he's in seminary right now. He probably would want to come and be part of your church and be trained up there. But, but he's looking to do Arabic-speaking ministry. He's really great at sharing the gospel with Muslims. He's, and we're getting excited. And I thought, this is perfect. We don't have any money for this, right? It's amazing. I don't know how we would pay such a person. But then I immediately thought, well, if the Lord opens this door, if the Lord opens this opportunity, I'm sure the people of God will give generously because the love of Christ makes us generous, right? If we have an opportunity to do good, to exalt Christ outside the doors of this church, I have no doubt that we'll do it. So whether or not that particular opportunity ever materializes in the Lord's providence, we want to be people who live with open-handed generosity. And I think by God's grace, that has characterized our congregation. I think it's that love, that love for the lost, the love for the glory of Christ, the love for more churches in more places that stands behind what Paul says there in verses 5 to 9. He says there, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll even stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries." So Paul wants to come to Corinth. He wants to spend time with them. He also assumes, did you notice there, that they will send him on, right? That they will help him financially as he moves on uh, to share the gospel in other places and to, and to establish other churches. But note that he, he wants to stay for the time being in Ephesus, not because he prefers Ephesus to Corinth, but because he says a wide door for effective ministry has been opened for him. He cares about Corinth, otherwise he wouldn't be writing this letter, but he knows they have the gospel there. Paul prioritizes making sure that the, the work in Ephesus is well established, that the church there is placed beyond the influence of the gospel's adversaries. And so he doesn't want to come yet to Corinth. It's likely that's the same reason that Apollos wouldn't come to them, as, as he says there in verse 12. In verse 12, it says, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. It seems like the Corinthians, in one of their previous letters to Paul, had asked him to send Apollos, which, if you've been here for this whole series, you know was a bit of a shot at Paul. There were many in Corinth who loved Apollos, and who honored him more than they honored Paul, even though Paul was the one who founded the church. And so the letter that they had sent to Paul, we know, was critical of him, questioning his authority. And if it asked him to send Apollos, their preferred leader, there's no way that that wouldn't have been an insult to Paul. But he says there in verse 12, Paul says, I strongly urged him to come, and he didn't want to. We're not told why. It could be that Apollos didn't want to stoke the divisions and the rivalries that were already in the church. But it makes sense that if he's there in Ephesus with Paul, that, that he was interested in continuing that same work that Paul was doing, that he was concerned with this open door for ministry. Sadly, Paul wasn't able to follow through on his plans. His plan was to not visit Corinth 
so that he could do the work in Ephesus, but, but he wasn't able to keep that plan. He, he wanted to stay in Ephesus until he went through Macedonia, but we know from 2 Corinthians that he had to actually go to Corinth and make an emergency visit. Not too long after this letter was written, word came back to Paul that things in Corinth were getting worse. In fact, the, the people there didn't listen to what Paul said in his letter. There was outright rebellion against Paul's authority and his teaching. False teachers were beginning to become established in the congregation, and the church was in real danger. So here in chapter 16, Paul says, I'm not going to visit you, but he did have to visit. And it went really badly. It's known to history as Paul's painful visit. That's how he refers to it in 2 Corinthians. It seems that he went to Corinth to try and help the church. And when he was there, he was openly insulted and mistreated. So he says in 2 Corinthians that he actually left. He, he cut this painful visit short because, because he was afraid that his presence there was provoking people to further sin. And so he left and he wrote 2 Corinthians to the church, calling them to repent. And I think that actually leads us then to the second kind of love that Paul enjoins on the church here. The first is love for Christians in other places, for other churches, and for the spread of the gospel. The second kind of love is love for their leaders. See, Paul knows that this church is prone to following the wrong people. They're prone to following charismatic and schismatic leaders. And so he wants them to set their love and their honor on the right kind of people. Uh, this will be brief, but it's important, I think, to Paul's thought here. If you look there in verses 10 and 11, Paul says, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as am I. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that, that Timothy's actually already on his way to Corinth. He, Paul says there that he's sending Timothy to remind the church of his ways in Christ. So Paul wants the church to receive this young man, this protege of Paul's, and even send him again financially on his way. Paul wants them to honor Timothy as, he says, one who's doing the work of the Lord. Right? Even though Timothy was a young man, Paul says, don't despise him. Honor Timothy. Follow his teaching. That also seems to be the gist of what Paul tells them there in verses 15 to 18. He says there, beginning in verse 15, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, that they've devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they've made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. We first read about Stephanus back in chapter one. You remember Paul says, I didn't baptize anybody. Well, no, hold on, I baptized Stephanus and his family. I can't remember if I baptized anybody else, right? We know that Stephanus and his family, his household, they were the first believers in Corinth. And so he and members of his house, potentially including some of his servants and staff, they were, they were the first converts in this region. And the language that Paul uses here to describe their role in the church makes it clear that they were recognized 
as leaders. In fact, we have a letter from Clement, uh, one of the early leaders of the church in the 90s AD, where he talks about the household of Stephanus being elders, uh, or at least some of them serving as elders, or he calls them bishops in the church in Corinth. And so Paul here urges the church to be subject, to show honor to, to follow Stephanus, but not just him, but Paul says, to such as these, including those who are Stephanus's fellow workers and laborers. The church, Paul says there in verse 18, is to give recognition to these kinds of people. These are the people that are meant to be leaders in the church. Now, what is it about them that qualifies them for leadership? In Paul's later letters to Timothy and Titus, he's going to give some very specific character qualities that are required of elders. Here, he is more general. What is it about Stephanus and his fellow laborers that, that make them people that should be followed? Why should the church be subject to them? Why are they worthy of honor and recognition? Well, the answer is there in verse 15. They have shown themselves to be great, great in the way that Jesus himself defined it. For they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. The King James Version has, has a ridiculously excellent translation. He says they've addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Friends, that's the model of Christian leadership. Devotion to service. Addiction to the welfare of the church. Those are the kinds of people that we as a congregation should imitate and, and bestow our love upon and honor and follow and recognize. I think by God's grace, he's given us such people in our church. We have people that we can, we can read Paul and we have people who are such as these in our church, people that we should recognize. My mind immediately went to the, the lay elders the men who serve us as elders in our church who aren't on the staff of the church, men who show up every other Thursday at 6 a.m. here at the church before their workday starts to pray for the congregation, to care for the members of the church, to give leadership to the church. These men get very little in terms of earthly reward for their service, but they're faithful men. I don't think it's just elders. I think of the deacons in our church people who faithfully serve our congregation, helping to make sure that people are cared for and that needs are met, that ministries are functioning well. I thought of people who show up for I-55 on Saturday afternoons, who serve the community and build relationships with people who need to know Jesus. I was thinking about the women who have been planning the women's retreat this weekend. I thinking about small group leaders, people who volunteer with youth and children. Right, those people are all people who have shown themselves to be devoted to the service of the saints. It's not that they're perfect. It's not that they have a great deal of personal charisma. It's not their success in business or their obvious leadership gifts. It's rather their love for the church shown in their service that makes them commendable. What is worthy of imitation about these people is their willingness, in Paul's words from last week in 1 Corinthians 15, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing 
that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Church, those are the kinds of people we should hold up and honor as models. Those people have shown extraordinary love to us as a church. And so we should show love and honor and deference to them. It's their leadership, their example that we should joyfully follow. I'll pray that the Lord would raise up more Timothys, more Stephanuses for our congregation. And that brings us to the third and final way that Paul sees the life of the church being shaped by love, and that is they are to be people who love the Lord Jesus. Look there at the very end of the letter in verses 21 to 24. Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. May love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. You see there in verse 21, Paul takes the pen from his secretary's hand and he writes this last part himself. There in verse 23, he blesses them. He wishes the grace of Jesus would be with them. There in verse 24, he sends his love to them all. My love be with you, he says. But there in verse 22, he says something that might surprise us. He says, if anyone has no love for the Lord... Let him be accursed. That language of being accursed is used by Paul in other places, usually to describe people who are engaged in in twisting and rejecting the true gospel as he preaches it. So perhaps most famously in Galatians chapter 1, he says, look, if anyone comes to you with a different gospel, with a different message of salvation, even if it's me, even if it's an angel, Paul says, let that person be accursed To be cursed is to be on the outside, to be separated from God's love and favor, to be be put outside of his salvation. And here, Paul describes being accursed in terms of love. He says, if you do not have love for Jesus, you are cursed. And then he says, come, Lord Jesus. Right, the... The, the word kind of behind Paul's statement, come Lord Jesus, is Maranatha, right? It's, it's uh, from very early on. It's an Aramaic word that gets carried over into Greek. It was very common in the early church, right? This prayer, come Lord Jesus. Last week in 1 Corinthians 15, we thought about that trump sounding and Jesus returning, right? That is the, that's the desire of everyone who loves Jesus. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come Lord. Right, the word that he uses for accursed is anathema. Right, it sounds a little bit like maranatha. Right, to be accursed, he says, is, is for those who have no love for Jesus, no desire in their heart for him to return. He says, if you have no love for Jesus, you are cursed. Again, this is a way of summarizing the content of the whole book. Right, you can't love Jesus and prefer worldly wisdom to the message of his cross. You can't love Jesus and create division in his church. You can't love Jesus and persist in sexual immorality, such as incest and visiting prostitutes. You can't love the Lord Jesus and treat his people like garbage at the Lord's table, right? And so on and so forth. So this is a very helpful reminder for us as we come to the end of this book. To be a Christian to experience God's salvation, to be on the inside, not on the outside as one who is accursed, to have the hope of eternal life, 
in a glorified body at the return of Jesus, as we thought about in the past few weeks from 1 Corinthians 15, that is to love the Lord Jesus. Friends, you can be baptized. And you can be a member of a church. You can be a deacon or an elder and still be cursed. Because what matters is not anything that you've done or any title that you hold. What matters is who you love. What, what matters is with whom you've thrown in your lot. What it is and who it is that animates your day and your life. Now, don't get it wrong. It's not your love for Jesus that saves you. It's his love for you that saves you. It's his willingness to take on flesh, to live a life of perfect obedience in your place, to die on the cross under the curse that you deserve, and to rise from the dead in victory and power. It's, it's his willingness to extend eternal forgiveness and mercy and life to anyone who will turn from their sin and trust in him. That's what saves you. And the proof that you've experienced that saving love of Jesus is that there is love for Jesus in your heart and in your life. Right? Because this love for Jesus, it's not merely an emotion, though it certainly does involve our feelings. But as we've seen in 1 Corinthians, it entails a decision of our will. Love for Jesus controls the choices that we make. It determines the things we're willing to fight for. It, it establishes the things that we're willing to give up and live without. Right? All of those things are determined by what we love and who we love. And so the book of 1 Corinthians is a challenge to us, again, as individuals, but also as a church, to have our lives reshaped by the gospel, by the love of Christ proclaimed in the message of the cross. See, Jesus is the very best gift the most glorious gift that God could give the world. And so there's nothing more accursed than wasting your life loving something else. There's nothing worse than squandering your life on self and sex and success. Right? There's nothing worse than ending your life under the judgment of God because you've loved the world rather than loving the one who made the world. And so anyone who doesn't love Jesus, Paul says is accursed. But friends, there are tremendous obstacles. It is difficult to love the Lord in this world. The world around us generally exerts a tremendous force that would push us away from loving Christ. If you simply float on the current of our culture and allow yourself to be sort of carried along by the things that it loves, your heart will drift away from the love of Christ. And so if you want to live out verse 14, let all things be done in love. Love for your brothers and sisters, love for other churches, love for your leaders, love for Christ. If you want to live out verse 14, then you're going to need verse 13, where Paul tells us this. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Paul tells us to be watchful. 
The, the image there is of a, a, a sentinel on a tower, a guard watching out for enemies in the middle of the night. He tells us there to stand firm in the faith, right? It's, it's an echo of what we saw back in chapter 15, verse 1, where Paul speaks of the gospel in which you stand. You see, we're to exercise care. We are to invest effort in making sure that we don't turn from the gospel message as Paul delivered it. He says there that we are to be steadfast and immovable in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Here in verse 13, Paul says, act like men and be strong. The emphasis there is not on masculinity per se. In fact, back in chapter 11, you might remember, Paul says, actually, women shouldn't act like men, and men shouldn't act like women. Rather, the word he uses here that's translated act like men, that's a good translation, but the word he uses here has an emphasis particularly on, on strength and courage and maturity and stability. Right? It's, it's not act like someone who has a Y chromosome. It's not act like a man, not like a woman. Rather, it's act like a man, not like a child. We might say act like a grown-up, like an adult. Right? Paul knew that being a Christian in Corinth meant having a bullseye on your back. The first time he visited the city when he planted the church, he was hauled before the Roman proconsul and driven out of the city. As I mentioned earlier, Sosthenes, his companion, was beaten within an inch of his life. The second time Paul visits Corinth, he's opposed by false teachers in the church. He has to leave for the sake of the congregation. The world in which the Corinthians lived was not safe and comfortable for believers. There were enemies outside the church, and there were even enemies inside the church. And brothers and sisters, you don't need me to tell you that the same is true for us. We live in a day where the outside world is hostile to our faith. Some of the most prominent voices inside the church are leading people away from the love of Christ. But when it boils down to it, you really can't love Jesus and also be loved by the world. Being a follower of Christ means you don't get to bow your knee to the God of toleration and religious pluralism. It means that we cannot worship our society's favorite deity the self-expression of the individual. It means that we believe that Jesus is Lord and no one else is. It means that we love him and nothing else. And so being a Christian in Corinth was hard and being a Christian in Sterling Park is hard. Paul reminds us here that we will need to be vigilant. We will need courage and maturity. We'll need to be watchful against compromise and distraction. Remember, this isn't a call to be belligerent. It's not a call to be a bellicose jerk. Remember, verse 14 follows immediately on verse 13. Paul says, be strong, be immovable, be, be watchful, and do all things in love. Brothers and sisters, that's what we're aiming for. Strength and conviction that has its roots dug down deep in love, love for Christ and love for others. Right? There is a cheap, easy, 
version of strength. It's very loud. It's really anger and fear and resentment masquerading as courage. But that's not what we want. The strength that we need as Christians, it's not angry, it's not cold, it's loving, it's warm, it's outgoing, it's expansive. We stand firm in the gospel because Jesus has loved us and we love him. And so we have a message of hope to proclaim to one another and to the world. We don't want to join the world in its darkness. Rather, we want to shine light into it. It might seem on the first reading that verse 13 and verse 14 don't go together, that, they, that they're mutually exclusive. But I think that's only because we've drunk deeply from our culture's view of love, that, that love is accommodating and tolerating. And sometimes it is. Sometimes loving someone does mean accommodating them and tolerating them. But oftentimes it doesn't. But if you think about Jesus himself, not an ounce of compromise. He never gave an inch to those who opposed him. He contended for the truth. But there's never been greater love. Jesus loved his followers. He even loved his opponents. And his heart broke for their hardness of heart. And he showed his love most perfectly on the cross where he laid down his life for his friends. Even asking his father to forgive those who nailed him to that tree. Look at the Apostle Paul. This church at Corinth had treated him terribly. They spoke poorly of him. They wrote him sarcastic letters. They insulted him when he wasn't there. And Paul never backed down an inch. In this letter, in his other letters, in his visits, all of it was aimed at blowing up their misconceptions of the truth. I mean, this church had hurt Paul deeply. And how does he end this letter? My love be with you all. Brothers and sisters, that's our model. That's our goal, to have lives so reimagined in the light of the gospel that we don't make any sense to the world around us. To have lives so shaped by the love of Christ that we're able to stand firm no matter what the opposition. And brothers and sisters, it's that love that brings us now to the Lord's Supper. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we celebrate and we experience the grace of the Lord Jesus that Paul wishes for us there in verse 23. The grace of Christ is held out to us in the bread and the cup, those representations of his body broken and his blood shed for us. It's here at the table that we tend and stoke the fires of our love for him and our love for one another as we remember all that he did for us so that we can be blessed forevermore. One of the ways we stand firm in the faith, one of the ways we continue on rooted in the love of the gospel is by coming to the table week in and week out. That's one of the ways that we're watchful. It's how we stand firm in the faith. It's how we continue on. And so let's pray to the Lord together for his help. And then let's apply God's word as we come to the table. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly father, we love you and we praise you as the source of all love. Father, in your great love, 
you sent your son so that we might have eternal life. Lord Jesus, you are the king of love. You modeled for us what it is to love your enemies by dying for us on the cross. You've given us your love. And we pray that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to love one another, to love our leaders, to love those outside the church, to love those who do not yet know you. Help us, we pray, Spirit, to stand firm, to be courageous, to be deeply rooted in love. And we ask all these things in our Savior's name. Amen.